and welcome to episode 180 of Real Life Ghost Stories. And I know it's Christmas Day. Happy Christmas to everybody who celebrates and to those who don't celebrate. Hope you're having a lovely time anyway. And I know that Christmas isn't the best time for a lot of people. So I thought about doing like a Christmas special and then I thought, you know what? Sometimes people just need an escape. Maybe your family are driving you mad. Maybe you're on your own and you just need some company. Whatever it is, we're going to have a bit of an escapism episode today. We've got a good old poltergeist story. And before we begin, I need to thank our newest Patreon subscribers. I would like to thank Lewis Pace, Gemma Ritchie, Nell Hansons, Patient Destiny, Kilohi Diamond, Pine Nipples, Mackenzie Walters, Katie Roberts, Lindsay Smith, Megan, Jessica Townsend, Carmen, Natalie, six years old, and Ari, 11 years old, Charlotte Hooker, Lee Ravenwood, Tammy Steger, Lynn, Sabrina Peters, Chastity Tichinell, Alison Steele, and Bambi Camacho. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Patreon. I love you and appreciate you every single day. And our film review this week, our film review is Barbarian. Barbarian was released in 2022. It is 7.1 out of 10 on IMDb and 91% on Rotten Tomatoes. In town for a job interview, a young woman arrives at her Airbnb rental late at night, only to find that the house has been mistakenly double booked and a strange man is already staying there. Against her better judgment, she decides to stay the night anyway, but soon discovers that all is not what it seems. As always, I'm going to do the likes and I'm going to do the dislikes and let's start with the likes and let's get into it. So I had kind of avoided looking up anything about this film. I was aware of the hype, like I was aware that people were talking about it on the Facebook group. I kind of avoided looking at any of the posts because I didn't want any spoilers. So I was kind of aware that this film, you know, was a big deal when it came out. It got very well received by the critics. And I will say, right, the actors and the acting and the characters that were being portrayed were great. So Bill Skarsgård is in it, uh, Justin Long is in it, and Georgina Campbell were in it. All of them, fantastic. Particularly Georgina Campbell, she's like the protagonist. I just, I really, really enjoyed the three of them. They played their characters fantastically. I will say that I watched this film with my brother, because I'm currently in Ireland, and uh, when I was watching it, I was like, oh, the last time I saw Justin Long in a film, he was uh, turned into a walrus. And my brother was like, what, like in a dream or? And then I was like, how do I explain this? No, no, he was, no, no, he was literally turned into, he was turned into a walrus. He was just turned into a walrus. There's no other way to explain it. And you know what? If people haven't seen the film Tusk, you you still need to watch it, okay? You need to watch it. But anyway, back to Barbarian. The story itself kept me guessing. And it kind of veered in loads of different directions, which for me kept the suspense alive. And I don't know if it's like my short attention span brain that I liked the different storylines. I liked how it like seesawed between different ideas because I was like, oh, is it this? Is it this? Interestingly, my brother guessed the plot like almost immediately when we saw that there was a spooky basement in this Airbnb. And it was genuinely impressive. He was like, oh, I bet this is the story. And then at the end, he was like, I told you that was the story. I was actually really, I was really impressed. From the time she arrives in that Airbnb and Bill Skarsgård's character is already there, I was like, I was hooked. It does tension really masterfully. And there were plenty of moments where like my brother and I were literally shouting at the TV. We were shouting at the TV being like, why would you do that? Don't go down there. Oh God. Oh no, she's going to do it anyway. Oh, this is going to happen. And I think that's always the sign of a good horror film when you're so immersed in it that you're like willing the characters not to do things. And I don't want to give any spoilers because this film is still relatively new. I know there's lots of people that want to watch it, but I thought the villain of the piece was really interesting and actually kind of nuanced. It was a really scary idea, a really scary concept. And then, as always with these films, it's kind of less scary when you figure out what's actually going on. But I really enjoyed it. I thought, oh, this is okay. This is this is an interesting villain. I'm into it. It kind of gave me um, Del Toro vibes at various points, particularly the ending. If you've seen the film, you'll know what I mean. And like I said, you've got these different storylines that are happening. There's kind of three main characters, really. Three main different storylines in tandem. 
And I looked at the reviews of this film and lots of people seem to have disliked what they saw as kind of disjointed storytelling. But I liked it a lot because you kind of ended up getting to know these people whose worlds would never collide and they're suddenly colliding. So I was kind of into it. And my dislikes. Honestly, I really did think the last third of the film was ropey (laughs) at best. And I kind of wondered if they were leaning into like an almost ridiculous comedy horror climax. Because I was kind of, I was watching and I was thinking, really? Really? This is what what you're going for? This is what's happening here? But then I don't know if comedy horror really worked because the first like two thirds of the film were so tense. And then suddenly it it gets a bit ridiculous. Like Justin Long's character, even even though I'm just going to, spoiler alert, not a very nice character. He does bring a lot of comic elements to the story when he arrives in the story there was this moment of like I'm gonna call it mid-air tomfoolery that really annoyed me Uh, I have a total dislike of people who pick apart storylines that are about like extreme situations or supernatural beings you know when people are like watching a film about werewolves and they're like oh that would never happen and you're like okay babe suspend your disbelief for five minutes you're watching a film about a person who turns into a wolf you know but I'm gonna have to do it a bit for this film because there are there's that moment of mid-air tomfoolery that just defies the laws of physics and you know the the villain and the people in this story they 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 abide by the laws of physics I'm sorry but they do so there is no reason for midair tomfoolery. I'm just putting it out there. This is going to mean nothing to anybody who hasn't seen this film. But if you have seen this film, I hope you're nodding along. I hope you're nodding and you're going, yeah, okay, Emma, that midair tomfoolery was a bit ridiculous. And I do think there were some major holes in the like validity of the story, right? And everybody knows when you watch horror films, the characters will make poor decisions. It, it drives the plot. But in this film, like in this film... Would you really stay in an Airbnb that a stranger was already in? Would you really? I just couldn't get beyond that. I was looking at her going, babe, I don't know. I like, I don't know what you're doing here. Between the random guy that you're now spending the night with and the spooky basement, things aren't good. Okay, things are not good. There is no way I'd be spending the night in that Airbnb. There are also lots of moments where you're like, don't go deeper into the basement. Don't do that. Would you really do that in real life? And I absolutely know that I'm contradicting myself. So if there's anybody out there that's hate listening to this podcast, then, you know, you're being very much justified at this point. Because I don't like it when people pick holes in horror stories. But there there were a lot of moments in this where I was like, no, I'm sorry. It just, no, just no. It wouldn't happen. Okay, it just wouldn't happen. But overall... I think it's definitely worth a watch. Like there's some serious kind of what the fuck moments. There was a particular moment where my mom, who doesn't watch horror films at all, she was in the room sort of stoically not looking at the television when me and my brother were watching. There is one moment where we were like, oh God, oh, that's not going to happen. Oh no, oh no, she's going to make him do it. It's, oh God. And we're like screaming at the TV. I was like, mom, don't watch, don't watch. It'll be really upsetting. There were a lot of what the fuck moments. I thought it was a decent villain. I thought there were some great characters and great suspense. But the final third of the film, you know, it isn't really great. But that final third doesn't negate how good the rest of the film is. So I kind of am a bit torn. I gave it four stars. My brother gave it three stars. So I'm going to give it three and a half stars. Which brings us to our story this week. And I am really excited about this story. When I first started looking into it, I kind of thought it was just like another poltergeist story. But it's a really compelling, interesting story. And just to give a massive shout out at the beginning of this, um, I got most of the research from a book called The Soaky Poltergeist by Malcolm Robinson, which is on Kindle. I think I got it on Kindle and it's really well worth a read. Most of the other sources that are listed in the show notes for this episode, they all reference back to this book. He has done huge amounts of work on this poltergeist case because I'm pretty sure that's where he's from. And obviously it's an older case than he is, but he is really interested in the case because it's where he's from. So settle down, get yourself a drink. This is going to be, it's going to be a pretty long story. So let's get into it. In November and December of 1960, a little girl in a small Scottish village found herself in the middle 
of what has now become the most famous poltergeist case in Scottish history. Paranormal investigator Malcolm Robinson became fascinated with this case and started investigating the events in 1987. He spoke with some of the little girl's classmates who witnessed the unusual activity that seemed to follow her. He attempted to speak with the little girl's aunt and other family members but fell short. For years he let the case go, feeling defeated from the lack of progress made. But in 1994, he decided to reinvestigate the mysterious poltergeist case. And in 2020, he released a book called The Soaky Poltergeist and Other Scottish Ghostly Tales, which offers some of the most detailed information on the case thus far, and includes interviews from people who saw the paranormal phenomenon in person. A vicar, three doctors and a teacher all witnessed the paranormal activity that somehow surrounded this young child. Dr. A. R. G. Owen, a mathematician and parapsychologist, said of the case, In my opinion, the Soki case must be regarded as establishing beyond all reasonable doubt the objective reality of some poltergeist phenomena. One of the most fascinating aspects of this case is that the poltergeist activity is not confined to one single location like most other cases in paranormal history. The Soki poltergeist did not stay at the home. It appeared to follow 11-year-old Virginia Campbell to school. A poltergeist is a type of entity that is responsible for physical disturbances. Loud noises, levitating objects, disappearing objects, odours, electrical interference and physical attacks. The term poltergeist comes from a German term for noisy spirit. Theories such as unprocessed trauma and energy displacement offer, in the context of ghosts and spirits, a more grounded explanation for this type of unexplainable psychical activity. Real life and fictional interpretations of this phenomenon are abundant. One of the most iconic horror films of all time is an American film called Poltergeist. The famous line, they're here, brought chills to audiences around the world and catapulted the paranormal phenomenon into the zeitgeist. The 1982 film was based on a real-life poltergeist case from 1958 that took place in the Herman's Long Island home. Another one of the most famous cases of poltergeist activity is the Enfield poltergeist case, whereby a young girl named Janet was the centre of strange and mysterious paranormal activity in the 1970s. If you need to refresh your memory about that story, then check out episode 21. But our story today centres around another young girl, an 11-year-old girl named Virginia Campbell, who was dealing with her own emotional anxiety at the time of this case. Sawkey is a small town located in the central lowlands of Scotland, but it wasn't where 11-year-old Virginia Campbell wanted to be. Virginia didn't want to move to Scotland. She was the youngest child in her family by many years and had a completely different experience than the rest of her siblings. Both of her parents were close to 60 years old and her siblings were already grown with their own families. Accounts of the family claims that they gave the impression of people who had lived for a long time in a remote and isolated place. That loneliness was only amplified with the move to Scotland from their family farm in Ireland. Her father, James, had to stay behind to sell the farm. She also left her dog, Toby, and her best friend, Annie. She wasn't too thrilled about having to live with her aunt and uncle and share such a small house with them. She shared a room and a bed with her cousin Margaret. Arriving in Sulky without her father James was hard for Virginia. Her mother got a job at a boarding house a few miles away, which left Virginia alone with her uncle and his family most of the time. She had to adjust to a new life at school, where she was reportedly shy. Some accounts even referred to her as unemotional and placid. She spent most of her time with her cousin who was close to her in age. Sharing a room, missing her home and talking with Margaret was how Virginia spent her time. Initially, her new life in Scotland was quiet but overwhelming, but it wasn't long before the disturbances started. 
A scratching was heard throughout the house that no member of the family could account for. Doors would open and slam shut when no one was near them. Objects seemed to disappear and reappear and it escalated to furniture moving of its own accord. Over the course of a week, a number of bizarre and inexplicable events occurred. Events that have gone down in history as the most prolific poltergeist case in Scotland. Tuesday, November the 22nd, 1960. The two girls were getting ready for bed like any other night. They were talking about their favourite movie stars. The conversation was rather light-hearted, despite Virginia's emotional anxiety within her current circumstances. Like any other night, they got ready for bed and climbed in, ready to go to sleep. But something kept them from sleeping. They heard a strange thunking noise coming from somewhere in the bedroom. It sounded like a bouncing ball. At first, the noise appeared to be coming from behind the bed headboard. It stayed in the bedroom for a little bit before moving to outside their door. The sound made its way down the stairs and into the living room. Her aunt and uncle were sitting downstairs in the living room and when they heard the commotion coming from the girls, they nonchalantly told them to settle down and get back to bed. But the girls came out into the living room and expressed their reactions to the mysterious tapping sound they were still hearing. Again, the girls were sent back to bed, but this time they were followed by their aunt and uncle, who watched in amazement as both girls lay with their arms under the covers and bangs and knocks audibly emanated from the headboard behind them. The girls lay, ashen-faced with fear, hardly daring to move in the bed, but thankful that someone was hearing what they had been hearing. To settle the girls down, the aunt and uncle made the swift decision to remove them from the bedroom and move them into a different room and tucked them into bed. The thunking noises continued behind the headboard, but as soon as Virginia fell asleep, the noises stopped. Wednesday, November the 23rd, 1960. Virginia did not go to school the next day. That afternoon, more inexplicable events occurred in the house. When Virginia and her aunt and uncle were in the living room, they all witnessed the same events. A sideboard from their living room moved five inches out from the wall and then moved back in again. Virginia was right next to the sideboard, but did not touch it or did not appear to have moved at all. That evening when Virginia went to bed, loud knocks were heard all over the house. The family was so shaken by these events that they enlisted the help of their neighbours. They hoped that their friends may be able to help them identify the root of the strange noises and unnatural activity they'd been hearing in their home. The local vicar, Reverend Lund, was called to help to find answers. He arrived at midnight that night and was able to decipher that the knocks were coming from the headboard of Virginia's bed. He asked Virginia to move away from the headboard in order to ensure that no part of her body was close to the wood and still the noises continued. Virginia did not seem to be causing these noises, nor was anyone else in the house playing any tricks. They seemed to be coming from something else or somewhere else. Reverend Lund ascertained that the headboard was not pushed against the wall so the knocking could not have been coming from next door and reverberating through the headboard. And when he placed his hand on the wood of the headboard, he could feel the knocking vibrating through the wood. While Lund was in the bedroom, he witnessed the poltergeist activity firsthand. A large wooden chest that stood at the end of Virginia's bed began to rock back and forth slightly, so slight at first, that it took the inhabitants of the bedroom a few minutes to really notice it. As they watched, the large wooden chest levitated off the ground slightly and jerked towards the bed where Virginia lay. The chest was heavy and full of bed linen. It was not an empty chest, that could be moved by a burst of wind or any other seemingly reasonable explanation. The chest rocked against the floor before moving off the ground again and moving 18 inches across the floor. It then returned to its original position in the room. 
When Lund suggested Virginia and Margaret get back into bed, there was an outburst of violent knocking, as though something did not want Margaret in the bed with Virginia. Reverend Lund suggested that Margaret sleep in a different bed in the same room and the knocking ceased, and both girls slept soundly without any further interruption. Thursday, November the 24th, 1960. By this point, Virginia's father had arrived in Sulky. He had sold the farm in Ireland and moved into the already full house. He was also witness to bizarre poltergeist phenomena, seeing an apple levitate out of the fruit bowl and a sewing machine started up by itself. Virginia's mother was recorded as stating, An apple jumped out of the dish. Virginia ate it. I went away to the phone. Virginia was in the house with Dad. He said while I was away an apple came out of the dish three times. The pot came off the cabinet and hit Virginia on the nose. It settled on the chair just before I came back. A piece of chocolate jumped off the sideboard, also a pencil. A Brillo pad came out of the kitchen into the living room. The light went on twice. Virginia was using the cleaner. It went off and the rubber flew off the handle. There was a knocking under the table. Virginia gave three knocks. Then there were three knocks back. On this day, Virginia stayed home from school again. That evening, Lund came over again to observe Virginia. They witnessed Virginia's pillow rotating about 60 degrees, while her head was still lying on it. Lund also heard knocking and saw the linen chest rock back and forth. The family doctor, W.H. Nisbet, was called in to offer his insight and opinions on the very strange occurrences surrounding this little girl. Dr. Nisbet heard knockings himself and also heard a sewing noise with no root cause. He also observed an odd rippling movement along the surface of her pillow. The occurrence looked like an invisible entity was running their finger or hand along the bed linen. The doctor was unable to help and was only able to offer to prescribe some drugs to help calm her nerves. Friday, November the 25th, 1960. The next day, the disturbances continued still. But this time, it did not happen inside the house. Virginia finally went back to school. In the afternoon, while Virginia was in class, her teacher, Margaret Stewart, saw the little girl's desk lid rise steeply. But Virginia did not seem to be touching it. Later, the teacher saw Virginia trying to hold it down. While the rest of her classmates had raised their hands, Mrs. Stewart noticed Virginia using all her strength trying to hold her desk lid down. It appeared to want to rise of its own accord. By the afternoon, Mrs. Stewart saw an unoccupied desk behind Virginia raise an inch off the floor and settle back down. She inspected the desk and found no strings, no levers, or other devices that would have caused the effect. She found nothing. That night, Nisbet came back to the house to watch over Virginia as she slept. He saw the same phenomena from the night before. The chest moved a foot, and the lid opened and shifted several times. The pillow rotated, and the rippling phenomenon appeared on the bedclothes again. Nisbet described this as puckering as if due to traction by an invisible agency. Saturday, November the 26th, 1960. For the fifth day in a row, the strange activity continued. The same phenomenon was witnessed Saturday evening. The noises and the movements happened again. Sunday, November the 27th, 1960. On Sunday, Virginia fell into a trance. During this trance, she called out for her dog and her friend Annie, whom she left behind in Ireland. Monday, November the 28th, 1960. On Monday morning, another disturbance happened at school. While she was in class, Virginia approached the teacher's desk to present her teacher with an essay which she had written. And as she put the essay on the desk and stepped away, a long blackboard pointer that was on the desk started vibrating and fell onto the floor. Virginia was standing away from the desk and had her hands tucked behind her back while this happened. She could not have been physically responsible for the movement of the desk objects. And things got stranger. As Virginia stood helplessly, 
the teacher's desk began to vibrate. Both she and the teacher could physically see it rattling and then it slowly lifted a few inches off the ground and tilted 90 degrees counterclockwise and moved away from the teacher. Virginia burst into tears. Please miss, I'm not doing it, honest, I'm not. Virginia was taken to stay with a relative later that day. Loud knockings were heard throughout the house where Virginia now stayed. These noises appeared to be following her. Tuesday, November the 29th, 1960. In light of these disturbing occurrences, more doctors were brought in to investigate the situation. On Tuesday, Dr. William Logan and his wife, Dr. Sheila Logan, visited Virginia in her home. They both heard the knocking noises near the girl and confirmed that the noises were not made by Virginia or anyone else in the house. At least not anything visible in the house. The doctors described the noises as gentle tappings at first, but then escalated to violent, agitated raps. Later that afternoon, there was another occurrence of Virginia entering into a trance. Virginia named the poltergeist Wee Huey. Dr. Logan is recorded as stating the following. I was called to the house because of the incidents and happenings that had been taking place there during the night, and as it turned out on previous nights. When I arrived at the house, the householders were in a state of excitement and tension and informed me that there had been knockings and noises and pieces of furniture being moved and that something odd was going on. So I went up to see the child who was lying in bed looking fairly relaxed despite all this commotion that had been going on and I asked her to try and forget as much as possible that I was in the room beside her. After I'd been in the room for about, oh, 10 or 15 minutes, I noticed that one of the pillows beside Virginia was beginning to move in a rather unusual fashion. If you can imagine Virginia lying with her head on the pillow here and another pillow beside her, and this pillow starts to turn in a rotatory fashion. In addition, I noticed round about the same time or shortly afterwards, there was an impression or indentation beginning to occur as if something was either pulling from inside or pushing, but there was no obvious physical force bringing this movement about. I checked thoroughly that Virginia herself was in no position to bring about these odd movements, both by observation and by checking her position of her hands and feet. Furthermore, there was no other person close enough to Virginia or to the pillow to bring this about. I waited for a little while, and only one other phenomenon occurred, and this was a puckering of the bedclothes. Now again, if you can try and imagine this piece of cloth as part of the coverlet on Virginia's bed, the bedclothes appeared to be pulled up and pulled towards Virginia, as if some force was trying to pull this coverlet. One of the noises was a very characteristic sawing sound. The other noise that was present was a knocking, a tapping noise, similar to this. At this point, he flicked the arm of his chair repeatedly and fast. After a short while, we decided to go home, thinking that perhaps Virginia would settle down and go to sleep once we had left. Just as we were going out the door, a very unusual thing happened, or it seemed unusual at the time. That was that the noises, the knockings, seemed to take on a character in that they became extremely hurried and agitated, as if something was trying to get us to stay in the room or attract the attention to the child in the bed. The noises became, as I said, agitated. And that is the end of my own personal contact with these phenomena. But I have been given permission to read extracts from a diary that I suggested that a close relative of the child should keep, shortly after the event started. Wednesday, November the 30th, 1960. Finally, after days of consecutive, unexplainable and disturbing activity, everything stops. On Wednesday, November the 30th, nothing strange happens to Virginia. Thursday, December the 1st, 1960. The rest from the paranormal activity lasted only one day. By Thursday, the activity commenced again. The Logans and Dr. Nisbet set up a film camera and a tape recorder in Virginia's bedroom between 9pm and 10.30pm that night. They hoped to be able to document the poltergeist activity on the camera and on the recorder, 
A variety of noises were heard. Both tappings and knocks were witnessed by those in the room and picked up by the recording equipment. The rippling phenomenon on the bedclothes was also observed. After 10.30pm, Virginia exhibited hysterical talking and returned to a trance state for a third time. At 11pm, Lund and three other church ministers arrived to carry out a 15-minute service of intercession. They were keen to stress that this was not an exorcism, but yet a way to cleanse the house and try and bring peace and calm. During the service, some knockings were heard. Several noises were recorded up until just after midnight, including loud knocks, harsh rappings, a sewing noise, and a scream from Virginia at seeing the lid on the chest rise. All of these sounds were broadcast on a BBC radio programme called Scope, which centred around the case. After what seemed like the height of the poltergeist activity, the disturbances quickly died down and weakened. Mrs Stewart, Virginia's school teacher, reported that a flower bowl that Virginia had placed on her desk moved across the surface in the same way the blackboard pointer did weeks prior. And this seems to be the last known poltergeist activity surrounding Virginia Campbell. Dr A. R. G. Owen, a parapsychologist, considers all of these phenomena documented throughout this case to be well attested and from credible witnesses. He believes that all involved were telling the truth about their experiences. Dr Owen visited the family in January, just over a month after that week of extreme paranormal activity. He interviewed Reverend Lund, Dr Nisbet, Dr William Logan, Dr Sheila Logan and Margaret Stewart. He also interviewed Virginia and members of her family. Owen stated that all observers agreed that the sounds appeared to originate in the room where Virginia was and were not consistent with their fraudulent production outside the room. To sum up, it seems evident that the physical phenomena observed by the key witnesses are incompatible with trickery by Virginia or by other children or adults. This quote was taken from Owen's book, Can We Explain the Poltergeist? According to the newspaper, the Aloha Advertiser, Dr Nisbet is quoted as saying, Virginia is not responsible for what has happened, the child is innocent. What has taken place was not conjured by the child herself, an outside agent is responsible. Believe me, something unfortunate has been going on in that house. The girl was hysterical all the time the phenomenon was appearing. We decided to then try sedation. Virginia was given mild tranquilizers to quieten her. If the phenomenon was being conjured by her own imagination, they would no longer appear if her brain was dulled. But even though the brain was not working normally, the phenomenon still appeared. A lot of poltergeist activity seems to centre around the single individual. This is why many paranormal investigators believe the activity is caused by the subconscious mind of that person. This is a sort of psychokinetic activity, where objects can move solely through the power of the mind. In many of these cases, the person is under emotional, psychological or physical stress. Going through puberty is a catalyst for that emotional, psychological or physical distress. Parapsychologist William G. Roll looked into this phenomenon in the 1950s and 1960s. These paranormal manifestations are now commonly understood to be psychokinetic manifestations produced by living persons. Roll called this recurrent spontaneous psychokinesis, also known as RSPK. This theory found that the paranormal activity could almost always be traced to a person. Was little Virginia Campbell manifesting poltergeist activity due to her emotional instability after her move to Scotland? Was there an entity attached to her or was she exhibiting psychokinetic manifestations? Malcolm Robinson wrote his book The Sawkey Poltergeist on the case and even gave a lecture in Sawkey in a place called Sawkey Hall in November of 2021. At this presentation, he played the audio recordings from the event that hadn't been heard publicly in 61 years. Malcolm considers the fact that the activity seems to follow Virginia very rare. For any poltergeist event, this is very rare, he says. It may happen occasionally, 
but in the main, most, if not all, poltergeist effects will contain themselves to one location, and that's usually the home or the residence of, shall we say, the victim. There are a couple of other points from Malcolm's book that I thought might be interesting to note. Firstly, he interviewed Virginia's teacher, Mrs. Stewart, that was witness to those events, and she confirmed the things that were alleged to have happened in the classroom and also stated that on occasions she had seen the children's jotters rise up and move away from Virginia, and she felt that during the phenomena, items always seemed to move away from Virginia. On one occasion, Virginia went through the classroom door and left it open, and when Mrs. Stewart went to close it, she just couldn't, no matter how hard she pushed it. She ended up having to get three children and her to push against the door to close it, and she said that she felt like a force was keeping the door open. She also made a point to note that these events seemed to happen on a 28-day cycle. The other striking thing that Malcolm discussed in his book pertained to what Dr. Logan referenced earlier. He spoke about a diary kept by a family member, and sections of that diary were aired in the BBC documentary. In it, the family member who kept the diary spoke about the phenomena that was happening in the household and mentioned that Virginia's bedsheets had turned from green to red, which seems completely random. Until Malcolm reached out on Facebook for people who may have remembered the case and a woman contacted him. A woman who lived in Virginia's house but in 2003 and her email read as follows. Hi Malcolm, Yes, I lived there round about 2003 with my two boys, Michael, who was two at the time, and John, who was five at the time. They shared the back bedroom, and my eldest son, John, had constant nightmares, saying that there was a lady talking to him when he was falling asleep, and that his bed covers were changing colour. He was so distressed that I swapped rooms with the boys. The back bedroom had a horrible, thick feeling in the air, quite hard to describe it, not nice at all. I suffer with sleep paralysis and hadn't had it in a long time, but seemed to have it nightly in that house. My husband worked offshore at the time and I was there alone with the boys most of the time. There was always strange and very loud bangs and noises and my kettle used to turn on and off by itself on a daily basis. Also putrid smells now and again that would disappear on their own. I spoke to one of my neighbours about my kettle and she told me that I carried a presence with me wherever I went. We moved shortly after that. My father-in-law was at school with Virginia Campbell and he told me how he remembered the desk lifting up and down in that classroom. So is it possible that the poltergeist was still there or it wasn't a poltergeist at all? Conversely, the people who lived in that house after the residents of 2003 experienced nothing untoward. And to even further the weirdness of this story, Malcolm was then contacted by a man who had lived at number 17, two doors down from Virginia's house, who reported that plugs would fly out of the sockets as members of the family walked past. Strange clawing and scratching noises could be heard, members of the family would refuse to enter the building, the family would hear footsteps running around upstairs, and the man stated that as a child he remembered floating down the stairs numerous times and never being able to explain it. If you're a long-time listener of Real Life Ghost Stories, you may remember a listener named Tanya who sent in a story of her floating down the stairs too. So what happened in Saki all those years ago? Did Virginia simply make it up? Was it repressed emotion? A separate entity? A haunting? Whatever you believe, based on eyewitness testimony... This might just be the most compelling poltergeist case we have covered on this podcast. Before we get into the breakdown of this episode, I just want to say another shout out for the book, The Sulky Poltergeist by Malcolm Robinson, where most of the information for this episode came from. Um, All of the sources seem to kind of loop back to this particular book. And in fairness, it's very detailed. He goes through all of the different newspaper articles from the time. So the different people who were involved. He went and found a lot of the people that were involved and spoke to the ones who were willing to speak to him. So it's very, very detailed if you are interested. I got got it on Kindle, I think. Yeah, I did. I got it on Kindle. So that is a good place to start if you're looking for it. 
And also before we get into theories, if you hear any dogs barking, door slamming, footsteps or slight crackling on the microphone, just to let you know I am currently in Ireland and this episode is suffering greatly from crackly mic syndrome. Um, also, it's suffering from dog barking at crows outside of my window syndrome and general family members walking around syndrome. So, you know, send send well wishes, send thoughts and prayers. So listen, right, we know the theories around poltergeists already on this podcast, right? We've been down this road numerous times and I kind of, you know, I like the theory of it being a sort of like spontaneous human telekinetic energy. I'm not a massive fan of people who just sort of blankly say it's repressed sexual energy. I don't really want to talk about that when it comes to an 11 year old girl. Not that I don't think teenagers have sexual energy because they absolutely do. But the thing is, it's just too, it's weirdly vague. And I think repressed emotions is probably more, more of an appropriate term. So if you imagine like Virginia is this 11 year old girl she is plucked out of really rural Ireland and moves to Sochi in Scotland where probably nobody understands her because of her accent and probably she's struggling to understand people because of their accent. Just cultural differences. Like this story said, you know, she was from a family who seemed like they'd lived a very isolated life for a long time. So they probably weren't very cosmopolitan people, even by small village standards. So she suddenly been taken from her dad's not there her dog's not there her best friend isn't there she is in a world of stress and she's on her own she doesn't have siblings to do it with and she is described as being like a quiet shy kind of normal average is the word they used to describe her so she probably didn't have the voice or the capacity to really talk about it. and who was she going to talk about it to when her mom was off working all the time Maybe she spoke about it to her cousin Margaret, but Margaret's not going to understand what's going on for her. So there is a lot of repressed emotions going on here with Virginia. I think that's pretty inevitable. I did find it really interesting, was why I included it in the story, that the teacher said that the incidents occurred every 28 days. It's such a specific number to use and it's clearly in reference to the female reproductive cycle. So did she believe that the poltergeist was linked to Virginia's period or did the author believe that the poltergeist was potentially linked to her reaching puberty and therefore that detail was emphasised or highlighted? It'd be very interesting if you were a teacher to watch this happen and make the connection that it was happening every 28 days or whatever. Like, was she making a note of it every time it happened and therefore was like oh weird there is a cyclical pattern here or is that something that she has applied to the incidents in hindsight especially if she then looked up poltergeist activity or poltergeist cases and read about like oh they're linked to girls going through puberty so therefore was she going oh those things roughly did happen once a month so therefore does that mean they were linked to Virginia's period I don't know I just found it such an interesting detail to be included in the remembering of this story and there's also like that weird incident of the bed covers changing color I kind of I kind of found it really strange so there was this bit in it where they obviously said that Virginia's bedclothes had changed color changed color and they said that her bedclothes changed from green to red I don't know if I'd particularly find that paranormal. You know, if I was living in a house with teenage children and their bedclothes changed inexplicably, I wouldn't be like, oh, it's a poltergeist. It made me kind of wonder if maybe Virginia had done it herself in the middle of the night, if she had changed her bedsheets. And then I was like, what? in what context did the bedsheets change? Did the bed covers change? Like, what does that mean? Like, did you know it was the same bedsheet and it had changed colour? Or did they wake up in the morning and the bed sheet was the bed sheets were inexplicably changed? So they were like, oh, weird, that must be part of the poltergeist activity. So I was really like, what an odd little detail. But then to find out that it happened 40 years later, honestly, the author must have felt like he struck gold with that little detail because it's so strange. And what does it mean? And in fairness, Malcolm Robinson wrote in the book, I have never come across this in poltergeist activity before bed sheets change in colour whatever that means if you've come across before please send me an email my details are like at the back of this book 
And the way the woman in 2003 references it, it is, it's so offhand. She just sort of says, oh yeah, and like the my son kept talking about his bed clothes changing colour and was really stressing him out. And he, Malcolm Robinson wrote back to her and said, well, what do you mean the bed clothes change colour? And she was like, oh, my son used to say that the bed clothes would change from red to blue, which she thought was obviously just a really weird thing, but he was getting really distressed about it. So that's why she remembered it. And I just don't know what it means. Like, if it was just in Virginia's case that it happened, I would say, look, she had an accident in the middle of the night. She got her period in the middle of the night, whatever it was. She was really embarrassed. So she snuck out and snuck up and changed the bedclothes. You know, whatever it was. That's what I would be thinking. I wouldn't be thinking it was something to do with the poltergeist activity. But then to hear the same thing 40 years later where this little boy is freaking out because he says... His bedclothes are changing colour in the night. Could all of these witnesses be wrong or misremembering? Like there are multiple people interviewed in the book who state that they remember the incidents in the school. Now granted, there were people who whose witness testimonies contradicted each other. Like there was this guy who said in the book that he remembered the desk levitating like seven feet off the ground and slamming back down to the floor when actually most of the witness testimony they say like the table lifted a couple of inches off the ground and then dropped down again but like lots of people seem to remember the desk lids shooting up and desks around Virginia not even the ones that she was sitting at and just to make everybody feel a little bit better about this story Virginia her schoolmates really rallied around her apparently and looked after her that they were all really concerned for her they looked after her they uh, did things like at one point the press got hold of the story and they were like there were reporters outside of the school so they got a girl who looked like Virginia to put on a coat and make her way home and the, obviously the, the press then the reporters then followed her instead of Virginia so Virginia could get home and all these stories kind of made me go oh that's okay at least she didn't have a hard time in school while all this was happening. There was also Dr. Nisbet who said that oh she was really distressed while all this was happening so we have to give her tranquilizers. Well, in another account, I think it was Dr. Logan who said that she was really calm during all of this, all of these happenings that like she didn't seem to be distressed by them at all. So I don't know, really. I mean, is it a case that like, is it a case that the witnesses are misremembering or they're remembering a hoax? There was also a girl who was a woman who was quoted in the story as saying that her friend or her sister rather was friends with Virginia And they both went for dinner in Virginia's house and the knife and fork next to her would move as if an invisible person was eating beside her. Like surely that happened after all of this because this girl claims to have been friends with Virginia for quite a long time. So is it possible that actually the poltergeist phenomenon didn't stop happening, that the family just stopped talking about it? So we assume that everything stopped when when the week was over or the week as in as we documented um what if it didn't the implication from the interviews is that things continued to happen sporadically after the ill-fated week was over if the teacher really did create a pattern or see, see a pattern where these things were happening every 28 days then they would have had to happen outside the window of that week where everything supposedly happened And if these friends were calling around for dinner and knives and forks were moving as though somebody was eating next to Virginia and they said like a glass would lift up as if someone was drinking out of it next to Virginia, then we can assume that these things continued to happen afterwards. I just feel like this story is going to be my new obsession. I absolutely loved it. And I'm going to be honest, it just doesn't sound like this little girl hoaxed it. I know that she was going through like huge emotional stress and strain and uh, also good news alert she was reunited with her dog they brought her dog over to Scotland for her which is I mean we love somebody being reunited with their dog if this was today I'd be watching that on on a Facebook clip and crying of a little girl being reunited with her dog but it just doesn't seem like a hoax you know like when you, when you remember the Enfield poltergeist case like even Janet said look we hoaxed some of it because so many people were involved people were showing up all the time and we felt like we needed to perform a little bit and sometimes we kind of just liked playing tricks on people 
when Dr. Owen arrived, like nothing happened. There was no paranormal activity that happened around him. So you'd kind of think that if she was hoaxing it, she would have continued the hoax. You know what I mean? That she would have been like, oh, I need to perform for this person now. I need to perform for this person now. Which generally does happen in poltergeist cases that we see, especially those that are proven to be hoaxes that people perform and perform and perform until they get caught. But it doesn't happen in this case at all. And there's things that are said to have happened, like the knocking on the headboards. Yeah, that's explainable. There could have been a way that she figured out how to do it. There's lots of ways that she could have done it. But things like the big chest that was tilting, the lid lifting off it, the desks moving around her, the teacher's desk moving, you know, and these people all years and years later saying, no, these things really did happen. I really did witness those things happening. And to be really clear, it doesn't seem like the family had any benefit from this story. They had no financial benefit. They had no personal benefit. They seem to have been quite traumatized by the whole thing. Do I need a full Danny Robbins series about this? Yes, I do, Danny, if you're listening. So let me know what you think about this story. Is this the first time I've looked at a poltergeist story and really gone, oh, fuck, did this little girl move things with her mind because she was so emotionally distressed? Maybe. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Remember, if you've got a spooky story that you would like to share, you can email it to reallifeghoststoriespodcast at gmail.com. You can also check out the website reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. And if you are desperate for extra content, you can sign up to Patreon, patreon.com forward slash stories, where for $5 a month or $2 a month, you get access to heaps of extra content, as well as every single main and mini episode completely ad free. And on that note, I shall see you next time.